Hello and welcome. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. Wherever you're listening and whatever device you're using, welcome to our first show for 2020. Happy New Year. I'm Monica Attard and I'll be joining you here on the Fourth Estate this year, as will a team of media professionals and academics. In this edition, we're talking about how the media covered the bushfire emergency and we'll also be looking at those two words that apparently we were not allowed to speak until all the fires were extinguished, which has just about happened. And those two words were climate change. To navigate us through this, we are joined by two fabulous editors and one pretty fabulous student journalist. The editors first. Justin Stevens is the executive producer for the ABC 730 report. His producer's credentials are as wide-ranging as they are impressive, and they include the two-part series on the Lid Cafe siege for Four Corners, Keating, the interviews, and the killing season. Justin, welcome to Fourth Estate. And our next guest, if you read the Daily Telegraph or watch Sky News, is apparently too posh to eat a good old Australian chicken palmer. Ben Cubby is the night editor at the Sydney Morning Herald. He's also been a deputy editor and environment editor at the SMH. And Daniela Scotti is a UTS journalism student who's just returned from reporting on the fallout from the drought, in her case, out in Dubbo in regional New South Wales. Well, the rains this week have brought some much-needed relief to a nation that suffered through unprecedented bushfire and destruction. The fires have gripped the nation, and it's fair to say they've gripped the world. It's also fair to say that they've brought out the very best in our media, as well as the all-too-familiar fracture zones, as in with our media and our body politic. So, Justin, can I start with you on this one? A real Dorothy Dixer, if you like. The ABC did a pretty good job, didn't it? Yeah, I think the ABC local radio and regional division did an exceptional job um, and their role differs from a program like 7.30 or ABC News to an extent in that they're the rolling emergency broadcast. So there's a heightened responsibility for everything they're broadcasting that they need to be giving up-to-date information on road closures, on what's happening with fire conditions. People make decisions based on what they hear on ABC radio and that can save lives but obviously it's a huge responsibility and uh, ABC local radio and regional radio and regional video journalists all around the country, up and down New South Wales and further south, did an amazing job. It's a tough gig though, isn't it? If you're a reporter out there in the field, covering something like that is dramatic. Yeah, well, they've got to balance that with um, not getting in the way and not jeopardising what really is a priority in terms of what the RFS and what fire services are trying to do. Um But at the same time, they play a very pivotal role in articulating what's going on on the ground. Um, And then I guess there's all sorts of layers above that around telling people stories and telling that to the rest of the country, but then finding a way amidst that to start having a national conversation about some of the bigger picture issues. We'll get to that in a moment because that is a a, a very big issue um, that we have all, I think, learned a lot from out of this bushfire season. But can I ask you, before we get to that... Do you think the ABC could have done better anywhere on this story? I think any journalist who who thinks that they did a perfect job on any story is kidding themselves. There's always ways to improve or get better, but 
I well, work were there the any o- fault lines? I mean, was it, were, there, were there any problems that you can point to? No, no, I can't. I think I think the ABC did an exceptional job. But I would say that because I work there. But watching a lot of it over summer too, I was proud of the job uh, my colleagues in the regions were doing. I was listening to the ABC Listen app, and I was listening to you can change the stations and tune into all the regional stations. And I was tuning into ABC Canberra, ABC South Coast, ABC Mid North Coast, um, and they did an absolutely incredible job. Mm. Hour after hour. It was pretty extraordinary. So, Ben, for many people, I think uh, the coverage this season uh, would have been a reminder of the power of factual reporting. Um, Good journalism is often under attack in this hyper-partisan world that we live in, and in particular the world that journalism lives in at the moment. But it does show uh, at times like this that journalism is a public good. From your perspective, how did the media perform, generally speaking, and what was the best reporting that you saw during uh, the mm. bushfire emergency? Oh, that's a that's a tough one. I mean, uh, you know, you can't praise people without implicitly criticising others. Um, so I'm not no, really, not necessarily yeah. have to do that. But what was some? Of the, give give me an example of the best well, that you saw your people do, for example. I'll say two things. I mean, one, and just to pick up on what Justin was saying, like the the ABC radio was fantastic. It was bloody excellent. Like I had family down there, lost a home, barely escaped with their lives. No, Where was that? Cabago. Right. No internet, no nothing, you know, no, like, and what what they did have was, like, a battery-operated radio, and that, you know... That got them there. I mean, you know, we didn't know if they were alive or dead for three or four days, but it's, it's stuff like that that's a lifeline, so, you know, we can, like, talk about media coverage, but... Excuse me for a second. Just Yeah, it's, it's really hard. I haven't even talked about it with anyone since, since this time, a month or so ago, but... Mm. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I think they're they're deserving a lot of praise, but I mean, in terms of, of our guys, I think some of our photographers, like mm. you know, shout outs to Nick Moyer and some of these guys, like extraordinary. You know, they're in harm's way, but they're bringing back incredible stories that went right around the world. So, you know, like there's a lot of criticism out there, and some of it's legit, but you know, the, these people are world class. Mm. And it's almost as though as well the photography, just like it is with the video, is testimony to the fact of the situation. You can see it. You can feel it. It's quite visceral. And I think some of the r- reporting out of the Herald from your photographers was quite extraordinary. Um, when you when, when, when reporters are being, when f- photojournalists as they are, are being deployed to cover a story like that, what are they told? What's the brief? Well, it depends on the job. Um, I mean, you know, the the sort of people that we're sending into those conditions are very, very experienced people. I mean, in some cases, the reporters are more junior, um, but, I mean, they've done their bushfire training. They're fully briefed. If someone's a bit jittery, they don't go. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, it's there's a whole suite of, of ways that we keep it professional and try and, you know, maximise safety for people involved, and that mm. includes, like, safety-first manoeuvres to just get out of places, but... I mean, as I say before, it's it's an intense time. People plunge into situations to follow a story where, you know, perhaps like uh, in the cold light of day, they might think it's better to hang back. Um, Do you both the, find that as editors, by the way, that, that sometimes you might come across a reporter that you want to deploy to a story like that where you think, you know what, be- best not to do that? I think uh, we've got a massive duty of care to our reporters, our camera oper- operators, our I mean, Ben's case, photographers, anyone you're sending out, you're effectively responsible for. Mm. And we take that really seriously. We set up WhatsApp groups. We get them to check in on the hour where they are, tell us when they're moving amidst that to make sure that they're following advice everywhere. But that's a big responsibility. And there's the safety side of making sure they're not putting themselves unnecessarily in harm's way, but inevitably they will. Um, And secondly, there's the sort of post-story 
care to make sure that you they're know, okay after the event. Yeah, and the nature yeah. of these fires are they started in September, October last year. We had reporters out for days on end very early last year. Uh, and then over summer, you've got a number of people on leave, away, people stepping in to really um, do a lot of extra work. And um, you've just got to make sure that you give people, you pace people and make sure that you recognise in them when they need a break because usually you'll see it before before they do. Can I bring you in here, Daniela, because you're a student journalist here at UTS and you were deployed with a regional reporting team uh, that went... There were four reporting teams that went out across the state. You went to Dubbo, no bushfires but drought, so it's pretty emotional as well for those people. Yes. Um, how did you find uh, the, uh, the... I guess the emotional side of reporting a story like that? I definitely think that you need to go in with a sense of empathy like you've mentioned there, that bushfires weren't their their main thing. It was the drought. And for them, the way they described it to us, it's death by a thousand paper cuts. Yes, the bushfire, that you can't put one natural disaster beyond another, but to them, they're still going through the drought. The rain might have been a sense of reprieve, but it's still there with them. Mm. And that's kind of the way that they mentioned it to us. And did you find it hard reporting from out there? Yes. Yeah, it, it was hard, but they have such a welcoming nature and they take you on board. They they want you to be curious. They want you to ask questions and, and really see what they're going through. Mm. Okay. So, Justin, I mean, as soon as the scale and the ferocity of these fires became apparent, it's fair to say that anger started to build in the community. I think we all felt that. Uh, earlier, longer, more intense bushfire seasons, one of the key predictions of climate change. For many Australians, these events were just proof that it was happening. The bill was in and we're paying the price. Did you feel it was appropriate to point the finger at the underlying causes while people's homes were burning? It's a really good question and I think it's a it's a very fine balance that we need to try and tell people's stories, um, not in a way that intrudes on the grief they're going through and loss. Um, at the same time, we have got a very important responsibility to try and explain and provide analysis around the why and 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 in I think in terms of what happened over summer there needed to be that conversation all the way through it uh, but it requires a lot of nuance um, and how so how do you strike the balance I mean okay nuance where do you find the nuance what are the words how where is the fault line there well I think in this story there are just so many things that require analysis that some of it's interrelated a lot isn't. So you've got the debate around hazard reduction, you've got the debate around climate change and its role in more protracted fire seasons, uh, the need for nuance there that it wasn't the cause of these fires, uh, the role of arson and uh, how many of these fires were lit because of arson. Um, and then you've got the whole resourcing debate around the role of state jurisdictions um, with volunteer firefighters, with when to bring in the army. Then above all of that, you've got the politics. Yep. Um, so I don't think in some respects those things are interrelated, but in many respects each of those things require very serious perspective and analysis. So, where, so okay, so then so the, let's talk about the role of the politicians in your coverage then. is there, Was there, did you feel, um, an imperative, an obligation to bring the polys in on the discussion or is it something given you're in a time of heightened emotional angst that you keep the polys out of it? Well, I don't think it's a matter of keeping them out of it but if you speak to a politician on the day of a, of a major sort of natural disaster, quite rightly if, if the question is... 
um, what role did the lack of policy in this particular area play, um, they will say now is not the time to have that discussion. Mm. Um, And they're right in saying that? I don't necessarily think they're right, but it's not a discussion to be rushed. Um, And I suppose the most important issues to really force are the more immediate concerns around resourcing um, that do have immediate impacts in terms of the week ahead, the fortnight ahead, the month ahead. So that probably means that discussions of debate around resourcing, when does the army come in, why weren't the army there last week... Which are, that's that's one side of the equation, but the issue of whether climate change was to blame, I mean, that very, very core issue, which, which is a quite separate one to the logistical side of the argument. Ben, can I ask you, is it fair enough to go to Polly's when houses are burning, when people are in distress, to talk cause? Uh, well, I think so. I think so. Yeah, it would be my view a little bit different maybe from Justin, but broadly agree there. But the, the way I look at it is, is, is that it's all one story. You can talk about those different aspects and different angles you can bring into it or say this is a story just about the fires or this one's about climate change influencing fire conditions or this one's about backburning. But, you know, it's pretty messy and they all get tangled up together and I think it's important to recognise from day one that you're telling it's all part of the same story. Um, So that would be my view. Mm. And in terms of whether it's, you know, right for a politician to say now's not the time to talk about it, a couple of things. I mean, that... Now, there may be instances where they're right, but for starters, that gives the politician, you know, that phrase lets them decide what's right and wrong mm-hmm. and how Which is a problem, journalistically, huge problem. And I think most journalists would sort of be a little bit, well, hang on, no, it's my job. Um, and, and it lets them avoid having to have difficult discussions about their own record. Um, and potentially, if you downplay, you know, causes and attributions and climate change too much, then you're actually selling short those people whose houses are on fire. Mm, mm. You know, it's a complicated discussion. I think, you know, the main thing is a bit of common sense. We'll get you through it. And is um, it something that you sit around, you know, talking about as editors and as people assigning reporters to stories to talk to people? I, I think all of those issues were the elephant in the room over summer. What role was hazard reduction playing? What role is climate change playing in this? The repet- repetition of people saying from the most local of people to the highest levels of you know expert advice that this is not normal means it has to be discussed but i think just to provide a bit of sort of a clarification on what i was saying before mm. you were asking about is it the right time to ask politicians questions about it now i think you can the question is will you get a fruitful and informative discussion about it i think we have to discuss all of those disparate things, but the question is where do we get the answers? Mm. And uh, I think in amidst all of that, the, the best thing we can do as journalists and programs and newspapers and whatever else is to step back and speak to the experts. Mm. So speak to the scientists who have been researching and have all the data around hazard reduction, to speak to the CSIRO and see what they're saying about hazard reduction and the role of climate change, see what Ross Garno said 10 years ago in his report, rather than just bowling up to a politician yep. and saying, hey, can you explain the role of climate change and hazard reduction in this? Yeah, yeah, it's fact. It's, it's presenting fact. Mm. Um, there were a few meta-narratives that arose in this terrible summer. Um, one of them was something that you've mentioned, Justin, which was the role of arsonists. But the, you would have come across, Daniela, I, I imagine, in Dubbo, another narrative which says that climate change has got nothing to do with this. I mean, there were a few people that did see climate change or global warming as simply the buzzwords. Mm. In saying that, though, they're not denying that the climate doesn't change. Mm -hmm. They're the first to 
be behind the fact that the environment is constantly changing. Even one farmer in Narromine, he said that a rock takes beyond years beyond years to fold but now it's happening a lot faster so they did acknowledge the fact that the climate is changing some even mentioned the fact that the climate is changing faster so so was it the term climate change that seemed to yeah be a it, sticking se- it point? seemed to be the the buzzwords climate change environmental impacts global warming that didn't settle too well with people but start talking about the land the the animals the fodder the crops and then they're on. Mm. They're talking. Mm. Ben, um, how did your paper handle those kind of meta-narratives that arose in this season, particularly the arson one? Well, for memory, we didn't have a lot to do with that story. I mean, it was just like the numbers of arsonists arrested and stuff was a matter of public record. It's what the police said. So um, is a way to deal with that just present the facts, move on? Well, there's a little bit of culture war stuff that goes on around these things. I mean, I don't know. Everyone's got their own take on it. My, my view would be... And the view I try to take to work is that it's just best ignored. Mm. Like, I mean, once you start trying to bash somebody up for, you know, the wrong thing, it becomes a bit of a vicious cycle and you forget who started and you're just whacking each other around the head. So mm. I think, I mean, there's no reason for us to plunge into a debate about arson because it's pretty clear on the available facts that this summer's fires weren't driven largely by arson okay. and that the proportion of arsonists lighting fires this summer is basically what it is any summer and it, that it's the conditions that made it a very, very severe bushfire summer. Yeah. Also, I guess at risk of stating the obvious, this is such a complex and important story that you could have a single fire that was lit by, as a, by an arsonist where hazard reduction was an issue, where climate change made that fire more protracted and there were systemic issues in terms of how government managed it. So that's the risk in at the, the height of these events. And I'm not going to point any fingers at any particular media outlets, but we can be at risk of simplifying it to it, imply that there's a single cause. Well, let me point the finger for you because we're actually going to go on to, the, to, to, to that issue next because when the arson narrative seemed like it was running out of steam... Um, bowled over by the facts. A new one arose about the problem being a lack of backburning uh, due to the to the Greens and some of their policies. There is little, of course, evidence to back up that factually. But does that matter in the eyes of the consuming public? Anybody? Justin? So the CSIRO, Peter Mayfield from the CSIRO, appeared before a parliamentary hearing this morning about hazard reduction and he was asked, what role does hazard reduction play in fires like this? And he mm. said that hazard reduction is a tool... It is not. It is. It is not responsible for these fires, mm. uh, in terms of lack of hazard reduction. So that we have to rely on experts. But when you have when you have certain parts of the media extolling these as theories that are grounded in fact somehow, and based on their experience and based on their observations, um, h- how hard is that for the for the pub for the consuming public to actually reject as not being factual? Well. The other thing is I'm not necess- there is a big story there about hazard reduction and I think a lot of the reporters we sent out into the field, a lot of people in the community, the feedback was probably the same as it was to some politicians that there was a lot of concern about hazard reduction, the build-up of fuel over many months, mm. um, the, despite the figures around uh, how much hazard reduction was done, that they met targets, that there needs to be a substantive debate around whether there needs to be more. But the question is, can you have that discussion without vested interests latching onto that in terms of people being concerned about deforestation, um, people being concerned about 
whether it plays any role whatsoever. Because this does take us to the role of opinion in coverage of a big story like this, and you really couldn't escape it in this one. There were so many of them out there. But there were some pretty big problem areas, I think you could say, in uh, the Murdoch press, for example. Uh, and, of course, they were uh, they were pinged by very many people for having been climate deniers when they then came out and, uh, and said that that wasn't true. Do you think that people believe that? What, that, that it wasn't true? That it was not true? The line that the Murdoch empire is now running. Hmm. Well, I don't know. I mean, who knows what people believe? Uh, I think one thing we should be aware of is that the arguments, you know, that put down the Murdoch papers are often just as much a part of the culture wars yeah. bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So yeah. I think staying out of it and, you know, trying to attain a more sensible point of view by not wading into these things Again, I mean, that's the only answer I can ever give to this stuff. Like, it's pretty easy to go and bash up the Daily Telegraph if it makes mistakes or, mm. you know, the Australian for running stupid opinion pieces or whatever. Okay, can I put it this way then? Yeah. Uh, to what extent? Not do it. To, yeah, no, no, absolutely. And that wasn't that wasn't what I was asking you to do. Sorry, but what, yeah. what, what, um, and I totally agree. I think that what the would you like me to do? I think that the culture wars have actually have have created a few bogeymen out there about the, the Murdoch empire, which, um, which deserve to be blown down. But I guess the question is, to what extent did you as an editor find that the, uh, the opinion, the body of opinion out there that was being um, published made your job more difficult in getting to the facts mm. and reporting facts? The, the honest answer to that is, is no, it doesn't affect it. We're, we're playing a different sort of game with what we would do with mm -hmm. the paper than worrying about the volume of opinion on any particular topic. Mm. Sometimes that can make a story newsworthy simply because there's so much chatter about it. I, I agree with that. But in terms of I mean, the fundamentals around reporting climate change, about, around reporting fires at the Herald haven't changed for a very long time. I mean, that we've been solid on that. And, you know, the same... Stuff is applicable now as was applicable when the Gunner report came out, mm -hmm. you know, and down the stretch, like it's you have a sort of science and evidence based approach to this stuff. Now, opinion is, is a different thing. I mean, there's plenty of people who've worked for the Herald who've talked about, you know, greenies stopping back burning and that causing fires. Um, I think the opinion space is a is a designated space for people to sort of, you know, push their line. Mm. But to what but it's different to reporting and different to how newspaper editors sure. would, would look at it. But yeah. to what extent are, uh, are media organisations uh, compelled to present viewpoints that don't misinform? Justin? Well, I think opinion will always be at risk of being misinformed and have their own vested interests at the heart of it. But I think it's easy to say the noisiest opinion makers who might have a view as to the role of various contrib contributors with this um, have had a negative impact. But I think we need to sort of step back and look at the last 10 to 15 years and the way that politicians and the media across the board have navigated this discussion as a nation about the role of climate change, climate change policy, the role of how we play a role as a country with that mm -hmm. and I think we struggle we struggle as a country to have a very civilised mature conversation about that without it quickly falling into arguments about you know vested interests and you know people being very stuck in a in, in a view and you know you're saying it now in terms of the discussion about about the role of coal um, there's a lot of noise there's a lot of shouting but there's not a very civilised country as a discussion in the country about what we need to do from a policy perspective so there's the noisy opinion makers 
and they might still have their two bobs worth at the height of a disaster like this, but we need to kind of look at the role we've all played over 10 to 15 years and have we helped or hindered that discussion. Can, can I just ask you a question about that? I mean, I've thought about this. I think you're right on the money. Um, but is that the fault of the media or the politicians? You know, I, I tend to go, well, we've been doing the same thing with our newspaper for a very long time. We're a big paper. Lots of people read it. You know, it's the politicians who've been stirring the pot and endlessly recycling arguments about climate change. I mean, until they stop doing it, there's, you know... Sure, it's a bit of a circular debate, isn't it? But I, I suppose the question is, are we, are we reflecting that shoutiness and regurgitating that to the audience and the public? Or are we enough? Are we stepping back, speaking to experts encouraging a more civilised debate rather than encouraging conflict. Which, which brings me to another question for both, for, for both of you editors, but also for you, Daniela, as a student journalist in trying to decipher the difference between opinion and expert analysis. How do you delineate between the two? What is the critical factor? Well, um, if you're going to do a story or an interview about hazard reduction and the science behind it, are you going to listen and trust a scientist from the CSIRO or are you going to listen and trust a shock jock at TGB? Mm. We'll always go to the scientist rather than the sort of shouty opinion maker. But there's a, there, there is a whole range of people who are not shouty opinion makers, who are more, more subdued. They're not experts. They still get a run every now and then. Should they not? Well, if, they've, if they're expert and if, they're, you know, if they've really experienced and, um, and have credentials in the area... But if you're giving someone a platform who doesn't have credentials in a particular area and isn't expert in it, then you're undermining your audience. When you have to fill, um, fill a newspaper and you've got to get those words in, Ben, is it often hard to distinguish between the opinion maker and the expert and analyst? Well, not really. I, I think, um, uh, I mean, some of them try and make it as hard as possible for their own reasons, obviously. But I would say exactly what Justin says, like, you know, really... It's not, I mean, I'm possibly lucky. I did spend years as an environment reporter and, and things before I was, a, you know, in a different part of the newspaper and, and writing about science and things. And that kind of stuff does give you a little bit of uh, expertise in being able to sift through the rubbish and find out what's real and, and what someone's trying to sell you. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think um, there's no special skill. Common sense is important and an aspiration to always treat the readers as people with intelligence, mm. you know. And I think... You find out pretty quickly if you're writing for the Herald and you get something wrong in a story about science, probably... You'll hear about it. You hear about it from the guy that wrote the paper, all his mates. You know, the um, top experts will be on your case quickly. Yeah. So that's not the sort of mistake that you make very often. Yeah. And not the one that you want to make, you know, like it's a bad look. So sort of fueled by maybe a few stumbles in the beginning, you've sort of developed the ability to discern that and to find a um, network of people who are sceptical about things and can can kind of help you if needed, you know, to sort of assess as third parties other people's research. And Daniela, can I ask you then, as a student of journalism, um, you know, when you're in the research phase, how difficult do you guys find it to 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 tell the difference between opinion and, and expert analysis? I'm, I'm asking this question because as a teacher of journalism, one of the things that I find incredibly frustrating is that students um, uh, of this generation have grown up with 10 years of opinion in their, in their consumption of news media. Media. And it's a real problem because then they can't make the distinction between opinion and reporting when they come to do it themselves. Yeah. Has that been a problem for you? I mean, I totally agree with Ben and Justin on that. Um, it's it's easy to find people 
but it's hard to find people that know what they're talking about. Um, you could get any Tom, Dick or Harry off social media and get their opinion in an article. Is it valid? Is it correct? Probably not. But once you get people that do have the credentials, people that are experts, that's when your article or your piece has a little bit more substance behind it. Mm. Okay, well, let's move on to, to the final um, part of the discussion. I think we can probably say with a degree of fairness that there has been a, re, uh, a small but quite real shift in the political debate over climate. Are we all sensing that? Yeah, I'm sensing that. Yeah. Mm. Is that reflected, do you think, in those parts of the media that have been quite vocal in opposing climate change? Justin? I think there's been a shift, but I think... Parliament's been back for two weeks and after the summer we've had the first fortnight of Parliament has descended into really the, the, the same arguments we were having 12 years ago. Mm. The role of coal, funding, the federal government funding coal-fired plants in Queensland, Labor saying they support the role of coal, uh, not wanting to undermine uh, the role of coal and the, the, the economy. Um, so then you've, you've had, you know, challenge of the Deputy Prime Minister as well on the basis of agitation around his views on, uh, you know, climate policy and so on. So that is what we are relying on this fortnight. Mm. Um, and if that is the nature and quality of the political discussion after the summer we've had, that's somewhat troubling. Mm-hmm. Um, so perhaps it, it, it's a case of our politicians have learnt nothing, even though uh, Australians, generally speaking. Well, Laura Tingle spoke the other day about an interesting um, bit of research. I'm not sure where it was coming from that she was she was getting a sense of that something that happened over summer was that for large parts of the electorate, people's views on climate change policy was becoming more ingrained, as in people on the fringes of both ends of the debate. Were, they were becoming more fixated on their views, mm-hmm. um, more stubborn in that. So I think what you're saying is in terms of this ideological debate between the left and the far right uh, in the country on, over climate change policy, they're kind of vehemently, stubbornly more ingrained than they were. Um, so rather than saying everyone kind of coalescing, um, I think we're saying probably more the extremities of both ends of it. Ben, what do you think? Uh, that's a good observation. I mean, I'm familiar with that research we wrote about it. You know, the hardening of views is, is, you know, appears to be a phenomenon. And it's a phenomenon we've seen before when there's been stress on society, people harden to their, their kind of accustomed views. Mm. But to the, the politics and, you know, whether or not, you know, alterations in community sentiment because people feel that they've been personally exposed to the fires translates in any way to, to the political world. I think uh, maybe a little differently. I think perhaps some of the fault lines we're seeing and the, the you know the Nats scrabbling around and then coming out on the front foot today with Mr Pitt, the new Minister for Resources, talking about his love for coal. I mean, I wonder if perhaps some of these things are, are symbolic of uh, the the tensions within you know the coalition government really. And you've got the Prime Minister starting to maybe talk about committing to a zero emissions 2050 target, um, which. You know, would would have been difficult to imagine a year ago if nothing had changed. The idea of, you know, uh, Mr. Morrison off his own bat saying that, or you know, telling his ministers to talk to journalists about that, mm-hmm. is is you know, there seems maybe there is some movement there. Um, and I'm not a political reporter; I don't have a lot of sources in in Canberra. But uh, you know, the 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 mood 
seems to be one of a government that's trying to grapple with what it perceives to be a slightly changed reality. And you're seeing tensions within the right and the left of the government. And you're also seeing, obviously, tensions within Labor post-election where they got, you know, surprisingly, they were surprised to have been beaten. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, uh, I don't know, I'm reading the runes, we don't know which way it's going to go, but I wouldn't say that political change on this is completely out of the question. There are mm. some interesting things happening at the moment. And I guess what we can't discount is that over the course of the last decade, Australians consistently say they're concerned personally about climate change. In the Australia Talks um, survey last year, which looked at 54,000 Australians, 72% of people said they were personally concerned about climate change. But over the course of that decade, we've consistently seen the public be concerned about it, but not willing to stump up in terms of how it might impact them mm. by way of their jobs, the economy, mm. uh, personal cost. And so in some respects, politicians of all stripes are surrendered to that but is, is it the other way round, though? I mean, I often wonder if people say we want to do something, but you've got the leaders of both major parties going, no, no, we support coal, we like coal. No, you don't have to worry about climate change too much. We've got this. We're going to meet and beat our target. You know, the people are constantly being fed this message that it's going to be okay mm. because it suits the politicians for people mm. to think that, mm -hmm. whereas perhaps the fires are a case of reality bites a little bit. Okay, I think we'll wind up at this point, but can, I, I do want to come to you finally, Daniela, as, uh, as, as a person who might represent the future of journalism. Are you hopeful that the culture wars that we've seen raging in the media um, might leave climate change off its agenda at some point and some point soon? I mean, I'm always hopeful. Um, whether to say that's in the near future would be optimistic. I still think there is a lot of it floating around and to extinguish it completely is a task that it's going to take a long time to do. All right. Well, I thank you all for being here. Thank you very, very much for your time. Okay. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Well, on that note, thanks to my panel for a great discussion. Justin Stevens, executive producer at 7.30 Report on ABC Television, Ben Cubby, night editor at the Sydney Morning Herald, and Daniela Scotty, UTS journalism student. Thank you all. And thanks for listening to The Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on Community Radio Network. Make sure you're subscribed to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about media and politics and a few things in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks to my producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Monica Attard, and thank you for listening. <laughs>